The Bible has a common story that is woven throughout all of its pages, from Genesis to Revelation. That common story is the gospel, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but it's the story of God himself and our role within it. The story itself begins before the beginning of time, before God created anything, before the universe existed, before heaven existed. God had had a conversation among himself. God is a triune God. How God describes himself, he is three in one. In Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. God himself speaks of himself in the plural. We do not understand exactly how that looks. We will when we are in the presence with God, but today we really do not because our minds are very limited to grasp the fullness of God. So God had this conversation among himself, and in essence what he said is, I love you, Jesus, so much that I am going to give you a love gift as an expression of my love. And God had promised And because there was no one higher than God to promise to, you and I, if we went to to a judge in a court case, we would put our hands on the Bible and we would swear. So we are swearing to a higher authority. When you are God, there is no higher authority. So God raised his hand and placed his hand on his heart and swore to himself. He said, I love you so much that this is what I'm going to do for you. This promise was made before the beginning of time. And in Titus 1-2, it says, God who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Hebrews in 6-13 gives additional information. It says, when God made his promise, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. So in fulfillment of this promise, God created you and I in the image of his beloved son, Jesus. So you and I are made in the image of God. What it says in Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image. When God put this plan into action, at this point nothing existed and he spoke and then suddenly everything existed. The angels who are also created beings who were there at the time before creation, they saw what God had just done and they were amazed. The Bible says they shouted with joy. Um, in Job 38, 7, says the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted with joy. The reason there was such exuberance from the angels is they had no idea that God had the power, the creativity, or the ability to do what he had just done in front of their own eyes. When you think about creation, everything is a one of a kind. There's no duplicates. There's no duplicates of stars, of planets, of fingerprints, of people, of leaves, of anything. Everything is a one of a kind. And when you look at the power and when you look at the size and the scope, when this happened right before their eyes, they shouted with joy. The truth of the matter is the angels had no idea that God had that ability. Quite frankly, until somebody does something, how would you know that it can even be done? So when this happened, they were amazed. However, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 28, and in Revelation 12, that not everybody, not all of the angels shared in the exuberance of what they had just witnessed. When the angels shouted for joy and glorified God, jealousy happened. The Bible says that Lucifer, who was the closest physically to 
God's throne was jealous at God. He wanted the adulation to be poured on him, not God. So Lucifer had gone around to ultimately one-third of the angels and recruited them to cause a rebellion against God. In essence, what they wanted to do is they wanted to take God out of his throne. They wanted to take him from his throne and throw him to the ground, and Lucifer wanted to sit on that throne and get the adulation for himself. Because of this rebellion, because of this war that broke out in heaven, God, who created the angels and, and ultimately the fallen angels, cast them out of heaven and down to the newly created earth. Or as Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You can read more about this once again in, in Ezekiel chapter 28 in Revelation chapter 12. So now that Satan and the demons have been cast down to earth from heaven, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 that God had made one law with Adam and Eve. He did not say you cannot kill. He did not say you cannot steal. He had one law. The law was you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan questions Adam and Eve's understanding. He says, did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Adam and Eve affirmed, yes, indeed, that is what God said. And then Satan adds, he said, do you know why God does not want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Adam and Eve really didn't have that answer. So Satan explained the reason that God doesn't want you to, to do this, to eat from the tree, is because God knows that if you do, you will be exactly like God. You will know the things that God knows. You will be able to do the things that God does. And quite frankly, God doesn't want the competition. He wants the adulation all for himself. So over the course of time, Adam and Eve, every time they walked by that tree, were probably thinking, you know, hey, it would be good to have that type of power. One day they gave in to that temptation and they ate the apple. Now to eat an apple is not sinful. You and I probably ate an apple within the last couple of days. So to eat an apple is not sinful, but it was what they thought eating that apple would do. They thought, based on what Satan had told them, is that it would give them this power. So God said, because that was your intent when you ate the apple, you thought that's what it would do. That was your intention. So based on your intention, you tried to take me from my throne and throw me to the ground, and you, Adam and Eve, wanted to sit on that throne. So just as what had happened in heaven, Adam and Eve were now going to be banished from the Garden of Eden. So God, at this point, had put together the judgment on humanity. They said, because you did this, there will be physical and spiritual death. But God, because of his purposes, oftentimes will delay that punishment until later in life. So if we had a, a sinful thought or a sinful act, maybe we stole a candy bar, God is not going to have us drop dead right there in the convenience store. Perhaps he will, but generally speaking, he will not. So what he is doing is he's giving us a moment of grace to ultimately, hopefully mature, to learn about the ways of God and to repent and ask for forgiveness. It is here that sin has entered the world 
and the judgment for that sin is laid out in physical and spiritual death. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 and Romans chapter 6 verse 23 add additional details that you may want to read. In part it says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in the same way, death came to all people because all sinned. For the wages of sin is death. For now the love gift that God the Father had given to his son is now been defiled. Now it's sinful. So why would God allow this to happen? Well, the answer to that is how would we know about God's mercy and forgiveness unless we had something that we needed to be forgiven for? So God allows the season of sinful acts so that he can show his attributes about mercy and forgiveness and love. The truth of the matter is, if it were not Adam and Eve, if it was you and I that were in the garden at that time, we would have done the exact same thing. How often today do we ignore God? How often do we disregard his will for our, our lives and put ourselves on the throne? So we are just as guilty of this act of sin that Adam and Eve were. And the truth of the matter is, sin is passed down through procreation, generation to generation. So, so the sign of that is ultimately circumcision. Circumcision is a reminder to us that sin is being passed down to our children and grandchildren through us. Biblically speaking, in Psalm 51.5, it says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. John 9.34 says, You were steeped in sin at birth. Genesis 17.10 says, You and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision will be a sign. Romans chapter 3 adds additional details. And, and generally what it says is that all are sinners, none are exempt. That everyone is disqualified over the course of time by having a sinful thought or a sinful deed. Or in my case and probably your case, we've had thousands and tens of thousands of sinful thoughts and sinful deeds. So ultimately, God allows mankind to try to resolve this sin problem. He establishes the sacrificial system, which is basically the laying of our hands on an innocent animal like a lamb or a goat. You may have heard that expression, a scapegoat. That is where this comes from. So what happens is through the sacrificial systems, when we have a sinful thought or a sinful act, we are to go find an innocent animal without a blemish or defect, put our hands on its head. That transfers our sin from ourselves to that innocent lamb or, or goat or whatever it may be. And then ultimately that animal's throat is slit and it was killed. It was killed as a transfer of our sin to an innocent animal. So every time we have a sinful thought or a sinful deed, we are to go find an innocent animal during the sacrificial time and do this transfer. Ultimately, there's blood everywhere. God was showing us how often we sin and the effects of sin, that, that the innocents are the ones that are paying the price for the, for the sin. So as God over the course of time shows that everybody is sinful nobody is disqualified and it shows us how often we're sinful that at this point it is where God steps in ultimately God during his judgment said that that the sin penalty had to be paid by mankind 
Well, the truth of the matter is God is not man. So God could not just say, I'm going to make sin go away because one, that would make God a liar. And the Bible says that God cannot lie. And since God said that it had to be paid by mankind, if God took that away, that would be a lie. So ultimately, mankind had to do that. So mankind does not have the power or ability as the sacrificial system showed. So God, as part of his preordained plan, said that he would come to us as a man. Well, how would he do that? So ultimately, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, continues with an additional conversation among the triune God. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So that's a triune conversation where Jesus volunteered. He said, I will go, send me. So ultimately, Jesus put on the flesh of mankind, which happened through the birth of a virgin. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13 states, He has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. Matthew 21, 37 says, Last of all, he sent his son to them. So after sending all the prophets, um, setting up the sacrificial system, none of that worked as part of God's plan. So as the final resolution to the sin problem, God sent himself. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, Grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. John chapter 16, verse 28 says, I came from the Father and entered the world. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So all of these are passages or samples of passages that talk about God coming down from heaven as part of the plan of our salvation. So God came to us as 100% God, 100% man, and he lived a sinless life among us of thought and deed because he was born of a virgin bypassing the procreation sin seed of man that's passed down from generation to generation. So God inserting himself into the womb of the virgin was able to omit himself from sin. As an accreditation of this sinless life, the Bible says, Jesus said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin. Judah said, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Pontius Pilate said, why, what crime has he committed? Apostle John said, and in him is no sin. Apostle Peter said, he committed no sin, yet he died anyway. So here you have a judgment against sin, saying if you sin, you will die. Ultimately, Jesus came lived a sinless life, and what happened? He died. Matthew 27, verse 35 says, They had crucified him. Mark chapter 15, verse 25 states, It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Luke in chapter 23, verse 33 says, They came to the place called the skull. They crucified him there. John 19, 23 says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes dividing them into four shares. So Jesus came, he died on the cross, he died a death he should not have paid because he committed no sin. So ultimately, this is the, the mechanism that ultimately can forgive the sins of you and I. 
you and I are really the ones that should have gone to that cross. You and I are the ones that should have that eternal punishment laying before us. But because Jesus came and he paid for something he was not required to and should not have, he is allowing that as an opportunity to be a substitution for the judgment that we are required to pay. Or as Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 6 says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Deuteronomy 15.15 15 says, The Lord your God redeemed you. Isaiah 43.1, I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Hebrews 9.15, Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free for their sins. Isaiah 52.3 Without money you will be redeemed. 1 Peter 1.18 It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks extensively about the payment was paid by the blood of Christ. That it's a free gift for you and I, but it cost Christ everything. Hebrews 13 12 says to make the people holy through his blood. So now that Jesus has come down from heaven, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as a substitutionary death for you and I, he now has cleansed the love gift that the Father had given him. So it is at this point where he arises from the grave, conquers Satan, because Satan's only weapon is death. So Jesus, by conquering death, also conquers Satan which will be played out in the end times events that you can read about in Revelation. So regarding his rising from the dead, the four Gospels have much to say about this. Matthew says he has arisen, just as he said, he has arisen from the dead. Gospel of Mark says Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, he has arisen. The Gospel of Luke says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. The Gospel of John says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. Isaiah from the Old Testament in chapter 49, 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. And John chapter 17, verse 5 says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So salvation is, is a free gift. It simply has to be asked for by faith to receive it. It's not by being born in the right family. Everybody in the entire world is eligible to come to faith. It is a free gift. If we try to pay for it by being um, more good than bad or by doing good deeds or by doing ritualistic things, then we are trying to pay for a free gift. We either have to accept it as free or we have to try to pay for it. If we have to pay for it, we have to pay for it in full which we cannot do. That goes back to that sacrificial system nobody was able to do. So we can either accept his free gift or we have to try to prove it throughout our lives. And if we are disqualified by a sin of thought or deed, how do we remove that sin if we've rejected it by trying to pay for it by ourselves? So by faith, we ultimately believe that God had the power, the ability 
and the will to do what he did. And the truth of the matter is, even if you were the only person on the face of the earth, Jesus would have still come down from heaven and gone to that cross just to remove your sin. He did not do it based on a numbers game that there's so many people, let me do it. He brought salvation to you on a personal. He is your Lord and your Savior. He is my Lord and my Savior. So how did God have the power? Well, God is God. He has the power to raise from the dead. You and I do not have that power. He had the ability. He is God and he made himself man. So he was able to have the power of God, but yet fulfill the promise that the payment for sin had to be paid by man. So God had the ability to come to us in flesh through the womb of a virgin. And he had the will to do it because he loves his father so much that he wanted to cleanse the love gift to show his mercy and his forgiveness and his love. So Hebrews chapter 11, 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Romans chapter 4, verse 16 and chapter 3 say, The promise comes by faith. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's what Romans says. And to give you another biblical example, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For it was by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So now with Jesus back up in heaven, the love gift has now been purified. Jesus turns to his Father and says, I love you so much that I just died on the cross for you as an expression of my love. And now this love gift that you have given me, I in turn am going to lay them at your feet as an expression of my love to you. Or as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father as he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. So how do you and I know that we are part of this love gift? Just because people are born does not mean that they're part of the, the love gift. Many will be in hell. Many will be part of this love gift that will be in heaven. So how do you and I know that we are part of this love gift? That we are turning to Jesus and saying, I want what you did on the cross to apply to my life. Well, one, we have to ask for it. We do that by faith. Second Corinthians says in chapter 5, verse 5, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit that is in us that is a verification that we have a deposit of what is to come. Just like an engagement ring is a promise of things to come, the Holy Spirit in us is a promise of things to come. When God looks down on us from heaven, he does not see sinners, he sees forgiven sinners. 
he sees his son's righteousness through the Holy Spirit deposited in us. So what does all of this mean? It means that we have eternity in front of us. We will spend eternity in heaven or we will spend eternity in hell. To not make a decision is to make a decision. If I go to the airport and I'm waiting at the gate for a plane, but I choose not to get on the plane, that plane is leaving with me one way or the other. So by not making a decision is indeed to make a decision. So the stakes are very high. The time that we are living in today, these 80 years or 90 years or, or whatever um, is before us, is likened in the Bible to a mist off of a wave or to like dew, a morning dew on a single blade of grass. Um, it, it's very fleeting. It's very temporary. When you look at the world history and our 80 years out of it, it's a snapshot. It's a very small period of time. So the truth of the matter is, if you and I died today, our destinations are going to go in two different directions. The Bible says, absent the body, present the Lord. So if you are deemed to be going into, into heaven, you have the Holy Spirit in you as a, as a promise of what's coming you will be immediately, your spirit, your personality will immediately be in the presence of God. If you have not accepted the free gift and you die today, your spirit today would go to Hades. Hades is not purgatory. Purgatory is a non-biblical event. It's not in the Bible. But Hades is very real and it is in the Bible. What Hades is, is Hades is in essence, a holding place. And how this established itself, as I'll explain in a moment, is that for the Old Testament believers, people during the time of Abraham and during the time of Moses and during the time of David and, and any time prior to, to Christ coming in the flesh, when they died, heaven was not open, hell was not open. Because at that point, Christ had not yet come. They were looking by faith into the distant future. And they said, when the Messiah comes, his act on the cross will cleanse my sins. You and I, we look backward over the course of time. And we say the Messiah did come. And what he did on the cross will forgive my sins. It will be a substitution. It will be a redemption. So you and I and the people of the Old Testament have one Savior. They look, they look forward into the future. We look backward into the future, into the past, and it's that one event. So people that died during the time of, say, Moses or Abraham, what they would do is their spirits would go to Hades. Jesus describes it this way. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger 
in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers, let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. So here you have from Jesus' own lips a description of Hades. Now Hades, after Jesus had arisen from the cross, those that are deemed to go to heaven had gone up to heaven with him. And they are in his company. And if you and I died of a heart attack, we would immediately go in the presence of the Lord. Those today that are not deemed to go to heaven, that are judged to go to hell, they will go to Hades. Hades is still... Um, open and and exist. Ultimately, as the Bible says, it says in Revelation, it says the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire the fire is the second death. So what this passage is saying is the first death is our physical death. The second death is our eternal death. So whether it's Hades, which transitions into hell, it's it's the same thing. It's, it's misery. It's not where we want to be. The Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We should all fear the Lord because if, quite frankly, if we are in pain and agony, who is going to tell God to stop it? You know, there is no higher authority than God. He is completely sovereign. So we should have complete fear of God because he has our eternal destination in hand. And he's told us, quite frankly, exactly what it's going to be like. But he also has told us in this passage that we are judged according to what they had done, what we have done. So it's not going to be a mystery, a big reveal when we're at the judgment seat of God. We know it today. The measure that we use is the measure that will be used against us. So what is our view about God? What is our view about uh, creation? What is our, our view about uh, our fellow man? All of these things are testimonies about us. What have we confessed with our lips? Have we confessed God exists or have we confessed God doesn't exist? All of these things are going to be proof that will judge us or condemn us. So it's not going to be a big reveal. We already know exactly how we judge ourselves. If we've judged ourselves unfavorably, well, with God's grace, we can turn to him and confess and ask for forgiveness. There's still time. And if we feel like we are on the right road based on having the Holy Spirit with us, then we want to continue on the path that we are, are on. So... Ultimately, these are two polar opposite directions. Hell and heaven 
are complete two different things. One says, I don't want God in my life. I don't want the things that God provides. And and we're shunning God. And God is going to say, okay, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. That's what you're asking for. That's exactly what you're going to get. By the same token, God is also saying, if you want me in your life, then I am going to be your provider. I'm going to be your healer. I'm going to be your, your comforter. And you're going to have that eternity in heaven. For John 14.2 said, My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Well, God cannot lie. So, you know, God is saying, I am giving you an opportunity to not live down the road or in the same town, but you are actually going to live in my house and you're going to have access to everything that I have all of my glory and all of my riches you are going to have so we have a, a free choice um, that is what that common thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation it's a common thread and now that we understand it now we want to live it and to learn more you know there's other podcasts that will explain these things in, in greater detail so I encourage you to listen to those